These chapters will take us to the end of a major structural section of the book of Deuteronomy. We've looked in the past at something like Leviticus, which is very tightly and creatively structured. Uh, Deuteronomy is less so. It has broad themes that we can follow, and uh, that's what we've been seeing in here. So the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, this was Moses' historical review of everything that had happened so far. The setting of this book is they are standing on the edge of the promised land, getting ready to go in. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb are the last surviving members of the Exodus generation that were not children at the time. And Moses has been forbidden to enter that promised land. So these are Moses' last words to the people. Deuteronomy means second law, because Moses is repeating a lot of the things he's already said. And he started in those first four chapters with a historical review of everything that had happened up to that point. Chapters 5 through 11 contained general principles. There's a lot of good theology in those chapters about the reasons why we believe these things and the main ideas of justice and worship that God wanted the people to follow. Now chapters 12 through 26 concern specific instructions. And tonight is a great example of what I mean by that. Chapter 6 in the general principles section, talked about the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This chapter is going to read like Proverbs, where almost every verse is going to be its own separate section. So that makes it a little difficult to tie all these things together, but Moses is, is, is trying to get everything across to them he can before he goes home to be with the Lord. So tonight, broad themes are hard to come by, but I would say the principle of fairness comes up an awful lot. Justice, righteousness, all those ideas in the Bible are really the same thing. Justice, righteousness, fairness. And he's going to apply this a lot of different ways. He's especially going to talk about marriage a couple times. And even last time, we saw that there were lots of instructions regarding sexuality and marriage. We talked about gender at great length last time. But it's all going to be under this, this theme of what I'm going to call everyday righteousness. Because so many of these things are going to be very practical for your life. And uh, some of these things made me go, yeah, why don't we do that? So I, I'm excited to get into it with you. Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Isn't that a great verse? Let me read that again. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. Justice is one of God's favorite things. In fact, that's why Jesus had to go to the cross is because of the justice and the wrath of God but also paired with his love and his mercy and his faithfulness. But justice is not just something for society alone. These days we tend to only think of justice in terms of society, social justice. And the Bible has an awful lot to say about that. But what we're going to see here today is that we are expected to act honorably and righteously and justly even in our closest relationships with one another. And that really, there shouldn't be that much difference between the individual's act of justice and society's act of justice. So we're going to start by looking at the first four verses. This is actually a large section for what we're looking at tonight. But this is about marriage carrying over from the themes of last week. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, 
because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the only law in the Pentateuch concerning divorce. We have mentioned divorce several times where, for example, the priest was not permitted to marry a divorced woman that other men were permitted to do so, but the priest was held to a higher standard. It would be just in passing mentioned that this existed. But this is the only place where Moses, and of course God through Moses, will regulate divorce. When Jesus in the Gospels is asked, well, why did Moses say that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce? They're referring to this passage right here. And the reason given for such a divorce in this passage, and I think this is important for us to know in our application of it, is indecency, as the English Standard Version translates it, indecency. This is actually a kind of explicit word in Hebrew. The word is erva, and it means nakedness. It even can mean genitalia in certain contexts. So this is implying sexual immorality, that she would be given a certificate of divorce and sent away. So later on, when Jesus, we're going to read it, will say that divorce should only be in cases of sexual immorality. He's really not innovating. He's pointing to what Moses said here. He's just holding it to the highest standard possible. But the point of this law is, okay, yes, she may be divorced, but if she did remarry and then was divorced again, or if her previous husband or later husband died, the previous husband was not to take her back. Now this seems odd to us, but you need to get at what Moses is trying to write about here. The Lord never expected and intended his people to have easy access to divorce. That you, when you marry somebody, were not to be able to easily and simply separate from one another, and what this is doing is it is compelling the people to take sexual immorality seriously. He says, I do not, if you find something in your wife that is sexual immorality, remember he's using that explicit word indecency in her, so bad that you feel the need to divorce her and she marries somebody else, you don't get to circle back and say, you know what, on second thought I will have her back. Some people have even interpreted this as a, a protection against the woman. I think there may be something to that. One of my favorite commentators made this point. He said that if a woman is divorced by one man, she marries another guy, and then that marriage ends, the first guy cannot come in and claim dibs, you might say. Well, she's mine. Nobody else gets to marry her now. Like, no, you've separated from her. It was legal, and you're not to reunite. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 uh, in, a, in a similar passage. He says, whoever divorces his wife, as Moses said, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, as Moses drew out, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Moses uses this example of indecency. And we've talked about this, that the old covenant would often use uh, 
examples. Say, this is the kind of thing that would lead to this kind of thing, and this is the kind of judgment you are to execute. And there was to be room within the law for interpretation by the judge according to the situation. But Jesus, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, intensifies the law of the Old Covenant. And he says, if you get married for any other reason than sexual immorality, you are then committing sexual immorality and causing your wife to commit sexual immorality. The Bible is abundantly clear that divorce is a terrible thing. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates it. And the lesson for the Bible concerning marriage is stay together forever. We've got to remember this one. Because as we're now in a day and age where we're fighting over transgenderism, we're trying to hold the reins so that we don't start having this conversation about pedophilia. You know, homosexuality even seems like a tame thing in 2023. But we cannot then forget that divorce is in that same category as far as God is concerned. Now, it is a little different because there are certain cases in the Bible where this is allowed. There is never a case, for example, in the Bible where homosexuality is permitted. So it is in a slightly different category, but the Lord still does not intend his people to engage in it. The cases that are allowed are for sexual immorality. Paul gives another example in 1 Corinthians 7.15, where he says, if a believing wife is abandoned by her non-believing husband, she is free to remarry. So this is important to note that some people say that any kind of remarriage ever is not permitted. Well, that does not seem to be what the Bible is teaching. That remarriage was permitted in cases of a legitimate separation, according to the scriptures. And I even think, because of the way that the Bible deals with this issue, that there is grace uh, in certain situations. For example, the Bible mentions nothing about an incredibly abusive or, um, you know, criminal kind of situation. And some people will try to bully each other. Well, you can't leave because the Bible says if you leave, you're committing sexual morality. Well, the Bible tells us that there are times where it is fine for a, a couple to separate from one another in order to reconcile with one another. But I think the fact that Moses gives this permission and that Jesus does as well reminds us that there is grace here. And that there are many people that come into the church, and perhaps even some of you in this room, who have gone through divorce, have found the Lord after, or have repented of what you did before, and are now reconciled to the Lord. And this is why Paul says, whatever state you were in when you were called, meaning saved, stay in that state. But we have got to admit that we as a culture divorce too much. You know, when we say things like irreconcilable differences. For, the, for a Christian, there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. We are always to show love and kindness to one another. And Jesus, if you can't even forgive your brother or your sister, then how do you expect God to forgive you? It has devastated our families. It's amazing to me that some people will be advocating for somebody's right to divorce for any reason, and then in the next breath, they'll talk about how devastating it was for them as a child when their parents went through it. And we have love and grace for people that have gone through this at, at any level, but we still have to hold up God's idea that when you get married, stay married. This is not even, we have premarital counseling with folks. They'll tell you, we say, don't ever say the D word. Well, why, maybe you should just get divorced then. Don't do that. Because, especially if you don't mean it. Because then what you're doing, you are, people will do that in order to win an argument, right? Like, this is, we, we've got to sort that out. You can't talk to me that way. This isn't right. You know, you're having a fight. And then somebody goes, well, maybe we should just get divorced then. What you're trying to do is to push the conversation so far the other person said, no, 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 nothing like that. 
It's, it's underhanded and it's petty. Don't do that. If you're not going to do it, don't even say it. It's kind of like we also say, never withhold the words, I love you, from the person you married. Even if you're angry. I mean, Catelyn and I have been sitting on the bed, you know, having that little, <laughs> this thing. And, and somebody will go, I love you. And go, I love you too. <laughs> because we mean it, right? And what, what are we saying? We're saying, this is not fun right now, but this is good. This is not threatened. And things like that can be helpful. But, you know, this whole prohibition here against marriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, and then remarriage, I think you can get what they're getting at. It's like, this is not something that we do around here. I know people that have uh, been divorced and then remarried to one another. And I think that that is, can be a wonderful thing that the Lord does when he reconciles people. But I also say that even that is not the ideal that the Lord has laid out. The Lord intends us to stay together forever and to love one another. And that this is not something that we just say, well, it just happens sometimes and you got to get through it. We got to work it out and we got to help each other and support each other's marriages. And one of the things that we do in order to help support that comes in the following verse. So let's get to chapter 24. And we're going to do these next like verses at a time here. Uh, verse five, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. You could also translate that to make happy his wife whom he has taken. This means exactly what you think it means. Young men were to be given a year before being drafted for military service or anything else to be with their wives and to consummate their marriage and to enjoy themselves, not just their company, but sexually as well. And this is something that we as Christians are to respect. I, re I was in Peru uh, a few weeks ago and one of the men came up to me after the service and he uh, had his Bible open to, I believe it's Proverbs 7. I should have written the verse down, but he said, where it says, you know, delight yourself in the bride of your youth. Be intoxicated with her love at all times. Let her breasts fill you with joy at all times. And it's one of those I mean, kind of uncomfortable verses to read. This guy comes up and he goes, uh, what does this mean? <laughs> And the uh, pastor on hell who was translating, he was a little embarrassed. He said, uh, this one right here? I'm like, I know which verse he's talking about. And, and I said, it means to be excited with your wife and to enjoy your relationship in every capacity. And he goes, okay, I thought there might be more to it than that. It's like, there's not. The, the husband and the wife are to take care of one another and enjoy one another. First Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says that you don't even have rights to your own body in marriage anymore, but that the husband and the wife are to never withhold themselves from each other sexually. I have had many counseling situations where people will be like, well, we got married and then now she just has no interest in me anymore. Or, you know, we got married and then he's just, he's just let himself go and never, never pursues me any longer. That should not be a Christian thing, guys. Christians are to be taking care of one another as a guard against sexual immorality, pornography, adultery, any such thing. Now we are to take responsibility for that. Delight in your wife. Remain desirable to one another. You have a biblical mandate to do that. And I'm not going to pick on you ladies, but I certainly hear from the gentleman quite a lot that this is something that she's lost interest in. Or I'll have ladies come in and say, he's just, he's just a, he's gross. He just wants to be with me all the time. Guys, it's a good thing. 
You want him to be with you all the time. You want him to love you. He wants to be with you, not somebody else. And I will say to, to our ladies, because I think the, the point for the, for the ladies is well taken. Guys know that there is a, it's a very emotional aspect to this that they've got to make sure that they're taking care of. Ladies, you have to realize that, well, all, all he ever wants to do is have sex. He never just wants to be romantic. That is romantic for him. I'm being dead serious. When you say, you never showed me that you love me. You just want to have sex. That is like a slap across your husband's face. Remember that. Take care of each other. Delight yourself in each other. You got out of the draft for a year when you first got married. In order to be with one another, solidify not just the sexual bond, this is what I am applying it here, but the emotional bond as well, and also to sire children as fast as you could for this culture. So that if a man went off to war, he has somebody to carry on his name. Verse 6, no one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be like taking a life in pledge. To take something as a pledge meant collateral for a loan. So if you don't, how do I know you're going to pay me back? Well, you can take my jacket. Okay, fine. You can take my watch, we might say, right? Now he's saying you are not to do this for somebody's mill or their upper millstone. That's the big one that would grind the wheat, right? The, the lesson here is don't take away a man's livelihood in order to give him a loan. Otherwise, how is he supposed to be able to pay this back? Now, we don't really do this so much today, but it also comes up in sneaky ways. There are lots of companies, organizations, federal programs that are specifically designed to get you in debt so deep that you will never get out of it and you have a payment for the rest of your life. Student loans are terrible, you guys. And especially those of you that maybe are of an older generation and don't get this. Um, it's very easy to cast blame on young kids for taking out way too many loans and there is blame to go around. But you would not believe when it comes time to start paying these things off, how they try to sucker you into the deal where, oh, just pay the minimum for the rest of your life. To get to a point where you don't even pay down the principal. You're spending the rest of your life with a debt you can never get out of. Credit card companies will do this to you. Uh, payday lenders do this. The whole idea, the way they make their money is by people not paying this debt off. It's not right. The Bible is like, if you've got to lend to somebody, then don't make it the most miserable thing in the world for them. Give them a chance to pay it off. Verse 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's another prohibition in the Bible against what's called chattel slavery. There were two ways you could become what we would call a slave in Israel at this time. There were one is through debt. You could sell yourself, really you're selling your service to a person for seven years to cover your debt. Or number two, somebody who was captured in battle. And there were provisions made for both of those cases. However, the idea of going somewhere else, buying a slave and bring it back was absolutely prohibited. As was taking somebody of your own countrymen and selling them into slavery. Which is, of course, something that we, to our great shame, engaged in. The fugitive slave law of 1850 was a horrendous thing. And that's what got all the evangelical Christians riled up and sparked the abolition movement even harder. And here we are today. The Lord never permitted that kind of thing. Verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way out as you came from Egypt. We looked at the laws regarding leprosy in great detail in Leviticus 13 and 14. 
Miriam's story was in Numbers chapter 12. This is when she was backbiting Moses and God struck her with leprosy in front of everybody. So you can go take a listen to that story in Numbers chapter 12 or Leviticus 13, 14 if you want more details on that. Verse 10. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Very similar to verse 6, describing how to collect on a debt. If a man was going to give you a pledge, something to hold on to until he could pay you back, you were not to go into his house to get it. Why? Well, it's a dignity thing. You don't get to come in here and say, well, you better hand that over. It's like, hey, you, you are giving him a loan. You don't own this guy. This is not your thing that you're taking from him. And also, if it was something that he needed, most common thing was the cloak, the outer garment, the idea of that being he's going to pay you back because he needs to get this. But he's saying, don't keep it. If it's the middle of the night, it's the only way to keep warm. You're making his life miserable. There's a personal dignity involved here. Don't handle lending money coldly. Look each other in the eye. I, I cannot tell you how frustrating it has been for me dealing with large corporations when it comes to money matters. Because, you know, look, I'm, I'm as much a capitalist as the next guy here. But... When a company or a federal organization uses the fact that you're only speaking to a call center employee to deliberately avoid helping you, that's not right. Well, I can't do anything, sir. I'm just the, you, you're never going to talk to the guy that you should be yelling at. Am I right? <laughs> it, that's, the, the layers are to protect them from you know, doing what they say. I've had friends in the insurance industry who have left it because they say they'll just deliberately deny everything. So that, you know, if you, if you appeal it, then they'll give it back to you. It's like, what is this? What are we doing? It's not right. It might be legal. It's not right. So I just keep these things in mind for your own business and for your own life. That, so that when you deal with somebody else in this manner, you do not then do the same thing to them. Verse 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. Underline that one maybe. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Both citizens and sojourners ought to be treated well, paid fairly, and not oppressed. Sojourner, that is somebody who is not a citizen living in your country. So we might use the phrase illegal alien or undocumented immigrant today when we say sojourner. And everybody in this room, whether you've done it or not, we all know that, well, if you need something done at your house, you find somebody that's not here legally, pick them up. You don't have to pay them minimum wage or anything. And, you know, if they, if they don't do a good job, well, you just, you can do something about it because they're not here legally. That is so messed up. I don't care what, you, what your policy on that is. You know, there, there's, there's the way that a, a government and a state ought to handle these things, but there's a way that people are to interact with people. And God's people are to treat everybody fairly and kindly and with justice. Otherwise, the Lord says, if they go home and say, God, I broke my back working today and I only got paid a couple bucks. How am I supposed to feed these kids? God's not going to go, well, you shouldn't be in the country illegally. He's going to come to this person that supposedly goes to church and worships Jesus and says, after everything I did for you, you're going to do this to them? And again, you can have a desire for a strong border. You can be pro, build the wall and all that stuff. But when you deal with a person... 
You treat them like a person that Jesus died for. You can apply that too to your employees. Just so you know, I've been on both sides of this coin now. If you do not treat your employees well, they will mutiny against you. But they won't just do it out loud. They'll do it quietly in ways that you never know about. You can, you've, ever, you've been to a restaurant where the employees are not being treated well. Say, hey, I'd like a you know, sandwich on white bread with, with uh, ham and cheese. Okay. <clears throat> they make their way on over, and you're like, what are you doing? Well, it's really not about you. It's about the guy that's in the back, right? Treat your employees well. Verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Basic principle, the person who did the crime is the one who gets punished. And we have this principle in our jurisdiction or our uh, jurisprudence today. Not just anyone associated with them, like, you know, revenge culture. Okay, well, your, your son killed a man. We can't find him, so we're going to kill you, mister. That's not justice. That's not right. And also, so much for the idea of generational sins, by the way. Well, your father, your, your grandfather did this, so that's why we're going to punish you. It's not how God does it. Verse 17 and 18. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Take care of the poor. Take care of those who are unable to fight back. Don't take advantage of them. Remembering that you were slaves too. Remember your life. Remember where you came from. You know, I think back, my ancestors came to America as religious refugees, right? And that means that I ought to remember when somebody is being harassed or when someone is helpless or feels like that the country's not on their team, I ought to have a little bit of sympathy for them because my family left everything to get away from that same thing. And I don't know your story. I don't know where you came from. I might be just be in your own life. But when you've been through something, you can go one of two ways. You can either be very kind to those that are going through the same thing or you can be really nasty. Here's an example. If you have been a waiter at a restaurant before, you get two kinds of people. The ones that I don't care if you drop my food on the floor, you're getting a 30% tip because I know how it is. Or say, when I was a waiter, I would carry seven plates on my arm and I would just throw them out like I'm dealing cards. And so no tip for you. It's like, don't you remember what that was like? Got to be kind to each other. Verse 19 when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. You're harvesting your field, you've got a big armful of grain, and you drop some, leave it. And that's, oh, but, but I need all that, I'm, I'm going to sell it all. It's like, yeah, but there's somebody that doesn't have a field that needs it. This was called gleaning, and you see this in the book of Ruth. That Ruth went out to the, to the fields of Boaz, and she would walk behind the harvesters, because they would harvest and pick it up, and anything they didn't get was left for them. And Boaz thought she was cute. And he's like, hey, hey, who's the hottie in field four? <laughs> Go read it again. That's what it's about. And you're like, oh, that's, that's Ruth. And he goes, hey, drop a little bit extra for her. I want her to really like me. And he goes over and goes, you, you know, you don't, you don't have to go to any other fields. Just stay here, babe. It's okay. So 
This is how they made provision for the poor. You know, if you're picking apples and you miss some on the tree, leave them. So that way, family whose dad is sick and can't work, they can send their little kids to scamper in the apple orchards and find some apples for dinner. Every individual person should be making provision for the poor without wanting anything in return. Verse, or chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more. Lest, if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So, uh, there's lots of punishments given in the Torah. Mostly we read about somebody who is executed. But there was discretion given to the judges, remember. And apparently corporal punishment was part of this. We did this even in the United States until not that long ago. Uh, and now it's not really done anywhere, in, at least in the Western world. But he places a limit on it, that 40 stripes is the max. So that the man, he, he doesn't even say so that he'll be injured. He says, you don't need more than that. Now you're just being cruel. Now you're trying to humiliate this guy. And he says, once he's paid his debt to society, then he should be able to return. I don't want you to punish somebody so badly that you can never look at them the same way again. If it's that bad, then they ought to be killed, the Lord is saying here. This is why Paul says five times he received 40 lashes minus one. Because the, the rule the Hebrews came up with is, we'll only do 39 out of mercy, but also to make sure they never accidentally exceeded this rule here. So there's a lesson there to let somebody recover from their punishment, even if it's legal. If it was not worthy of death, then once they've paid it, then it's over. Don't hold things against people. And it's, you know, I've, I've had this thought for, since we've been doing prison ministry. You know, in our country, like, you have a fine and you have prison. You don't really have much in between. And uh, I don't know if I have a lot of solutions to that, but, you know, with as many wacky things going on in our prison system right now, the Bible had a lot of interesting ideas. And, you know, we, when you say, well, beating somebody is, is, is in, inhumane, you shouldn't do that. And executing somebody is inhumane, you shouldn't do that. Well, when you get in some of these prisons, and like this guy's 21, he's been locked up for the next rest of his life, and he's got to live in that world, that's not exactly humane either. Now, some folks want to say we just shouldn't punish crime at all. Well, that's not going to fly. But it would be interesting to see if this ever comes back in 100 years or so. Even if that was the case, though, it was to be done with mercy. And once it's over, it's over. Verse 4. <clears throat> you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. They would do this. They would have grain. They would have the oxen walk around it in circles. And with their big heavy hooves, they would thresh the grain. So they would separate the kernel from the chaff. And what he says is, don't put a muzzle on the ox. Let him bend over and eat some of what he's been threshing for you. <clears throat> but this is applied in the Bible, not just to the animals, but to pastors and to ministers of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, and 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, both quote from this verse in order to provide for the pastors and the teachers in the church. And this is uh, also something that uh, Jesus said, too, the workman is worthy of his hire. So we need to remember this, because there's people that will come in and say, well, pastors shouldn't be paid anything because the pastor's just doing God's work. Well, the Bible specifically says that those who minister in the church, especially the teachers, ought to be taken care of by the people that they serve. And I know a lot of pastors who, unfortunately, are kept on a very tight leash by their congregation, 
Because like, well, you really shouldn't be making too much money in the ministry. And these guys can barely get along. And they've got to get extra jobs. And that's fine for a season, you know, if the church is hurting. But I mean places where church is doing just fine. And the amount of work that the pastor is required to do, guys get bitter. Because they think, I'm doing all this work. I'm planning all this stuff. I'm doing all this research. I'm counseling. I'm cleaning. I'm planning events. And if I was doing this in the corporate world, I'd be doing great. And that thought gets into guys' minds. Gets into their wives' minds. Gets into their kids' minds. And I realize this might be awkward since I'm kind of talking about myself here, but it's biblical principle and I don't mind standing on it. That those who labor and serve in the church ought to be compensated. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. If you want him to tread that grain, then don't put a muzzle on him. Chapter 25, larger section now, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now this is called leveret marriage. It comes from the Hebrew word levir, which means brother-in-law. And we see this actually quite a bit in the Bible, speaking of the book of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer, the Goel, was the one that would raise up a child in the name of his brother who had perished or his close relative. A brother had the responsibility to take his brother's wife and bear a child in his name so that your first son would not be named after you, but it would be named as son of your brother who had perished. And I think in all likelihood, if there was an unmarried brother, then the unmarried brother would be the one to step up. But polygamy was also accepted at this time. Polygamy is kind of in the same category of divorce in the Bible, that it's not God's ideal, but there are cases where it is permitted and perhaps even desirable. So this, pastors of the churches are commanded in Timothy to be the husbands of one wife. I had to write a paper on what that meant in college. It drove me crazy. There's all kinds of different interpretations, but it's like, in a society where there's lots of wives, it's pretty clear. One wife. But polygamy was permissible in extreme cases like this one. If he refused, there would be a ceremony where he was publicly shamed. Now, removing the sandal doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it, it would bring uncleanness upon you. And you've got to walk home without a sandal, and everybody's going to be like, oh, look at this guy. Some, something happened to him, right? You know, it's like a cowboy walking home without his spurs, right? It's like, what happened to you? And she would spit in his face publicly in front of everybody before the elders in the gate, which means this is in a public place. If he utterly refuses to raise up a child for his brother and he would no longer have a family named after him, like the son of David or the son of Jesse, be the son of one who had his sandal removed. Shame upon your family. And this is what happened in Ruth chapter 4. Now, it's interesting. If you look at Ruth chapter 4, there was a closer relative than Boaz who should have been the one to be the kinsman redeemer, but he didn't want to, so Boaz stepped in. Now, the other man had his sandal removed, but they didn't spit in his face, and there was no shaming ceremony. So it seems that the, how they did this was 
If there was somebody who also qualified to do this, then that they would be permitted to kind of, you know, cede it to that person. Boaz was apparently unmarried. Perhaps this guy was already married and knew his wife would not care very much for him to bring home the hot young thing from Boaz's field that everybody had been talking about. And so Boaz took care of it. <clears throat> now, we live in a very different time, obviously. This would not happen. But we ought to consider the lesson of this section in valuing your legacy. I'm specifically talking about your children here. Because of birth control, we have the option of whether or not to have children. Now, they did as well. There were certain cases where, of course, you can prevent that from happening. But this was expected and desirable, you know, that you would have children. You'd have lots of children. In fact, almost every society throughout history and throughout the world has been that way. We are very unique and weird in this respect. Many people now are waiting longer and longer and longer to have children, which is not in itself a bad thing. But what is being thrown into the mix of all this is that children are no longer valued as part of society. That it's like many people, it is seen as if you have a child, well, you're giving up. You had your career going. You had, you know, your, your life was yours. And now you're having a kid. Well, all right, so much for that. It's really not good. If you're going to not have children, that's one thing. But to participate in a culture that looks down upon people that do have children is absolutely not biblical. Psalm 127. This is the dad's psalm. I love this one. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Bible really likes families and children. In fact, Malachi tells us that one of the reasons God invented marriage in the first place was that he was seeking godly offspring. He says, my people need to have kids and raise up more godly people. And people refuse kids for, for many different reasons that you hear about. For career is the most common one. And I'm, I'm most specifically talking about women here. There are some men that just simply do not want children. But it seems like I personally come across more where the husband would be delighted to have a child, but he feels that he should not push the issue because his wife is maybe focused on her career, that she wants to succeed. She wants to get out there and she wants to earn for herself. Or the other one that you hear is for your appearance. You'll hear this one a lot. Well, I don't want to have a kid and wreck my body. Or her husband's, I don't want my wife to have a kid and wreck her body. I've heard that one before. Or for fun, we're, we're still young. We're still having fun. We want to be able to get out and do our things by ourselves without a bunch of kids hanging around us. Or sometimes, oh, we're just not mature enough. We're just not ready. We just don't want kids. Not any one of those things is necessarily wrong. However, we need to check ourselves and make sure that these things are not manifestations of a deeper selfish attitude. For example, I don't want kids for my career. Okay, that, that is nothing specifically wrong about that. But are you getting your worth and your value from your career? Are you saying that what I accomplish is what defines me and determines who I am as a person? Because that's not good. That's not healthy. There's a lot of Christmas movies about how that's not a good thing to do. Or your appearance. All right, if you want to remain you know, attractive to one another, I understand that. But is that out of love for each other or is that vanity? Sometimes it's like, it's not that I want to maintain my looks for my husband or for my wife. It's so that I can keep posting pictures on Instagram where people will admire me. Or for fun. Okay, you want to be able to enjoy your life? Guys, 
It is so much fun living life with children. Can I just throw that out there? Just first of all, we'll say that. But also, is, is this an immaturity thing? Is this, are you trying to hang on to years from, that you have long passed? If that's what's going on, then there is an immaturity problem. So not every person, certainly, that decides not to have children is guilty of sin. However, make sure that the reasons you're making these decisions are not manifestations of something that is sinful. I hope I'm clear in the distinction there. It used to be, and not that long ago, that families built a legacy over generations. We'd come over and we'd say, you know, to America, for example, and we're going to be poor, but we're going to send you to school. You work hard so that you can do a little better than us. And then your kids will work hard and they'll do a little better. And then by then, they'll be able to marry into a bigger family. And this is how people ascended. But now we're living in a generation where everybody wants to cash their chips in on their life now. And I don't know that that's such a good thing. I've, I've shared, this is not scripture, but this is, you know, my family's ancient motto when we did our, our family tree and everything was, Latin was non nobis tantum nati, which means we are not born for ourselves alone. And people get bitter because they say, well, why can't I be a billionaire? Why can't I be a multimillionaire? It's like, because that takes generations to build. You know, this family works a little harder. Okay, we were living in the slum, but now we're, we made it and we're, you know, we're living in a, in a modest suburb. But my kids are going to work hard and maybe they're going to be a doctor and they're going to be afford something nicer. And now we're running in a circle where we have access to more opportunities and more things and now we, we grow together. We need to make sure that we're thinking in terms of legacy, not just in terms of today. We don't want to be part of a culture that disregards families and children because we are being selfish. Not everybody that does that is being selfish, but check your heart and make sure that you are not participating in that. All I can say is, you know, I cannot tell you how many people. Catelyn and I, uh, we had our first son was born 18 months after we got married. And I had people like, when we announced we were pregnant, say, are you sure you're ready? It's like, homeboy, that was a conversation to have a long time ago. <laughs> All I want from you is congratulations, Tyler. But people would just tell me, oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, was it an accident? It's like, excuse me. It's like, I wanted children, and now we have children. And I've delighted, well, you know, your life is going to stop. It's going to slow down. Like, well, they make those little backpack things. Now you can just toss them in the back with you. And I'll say one more thing on this topic. It's something that I care about, even though it's, it's, some of this is my opinion. You know, sort out what's scripture and what's not. But as your pastor, I don't mind giving you the wisdom that I've gained here that some people will say, well, it's a shame that we've got to grow up and you can't be like when you were a kid. You're, you'll see those you know, inane videos. Where, what happened when you could just play make-believe on the floor? Why do we all have to grow up? Like, I still get to play make-believe on the floor because I got children. I can run around like a little you know, horse or a dog and tackle and... I can buy G.I. Joes for my sons, you know? <laughs> Buying Lego sets when they were too young to even like walk and stuff. And, you know, because it's like, hey, this allows you to hold on to some of that that you're missing and still move on and keep the generations going. So, um, yeah, let's at least value the family, right? Value our legacy. And if somebody makes a different choice, that's okay. Just check your heart and make sure that you're not doing something you're going to regret. <clears throat> Verse 11 and 12, when men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. This is an interesting rule. 
that a woman was not to interfere like this in a fight. Now, why does God take the time to put this in the Bible? You know, I don't know that there was a problem that this just kept happening and they needed to say something. <laughs> but let me, let me throw one possible application to this. For, first of all, it's if they're engaged in, in a fight, you know, don't, don't step in and cheat like that. Don't step in and maul somebody. Like, listen, even in like the UFC, there's rules, right? And this is, this is a line that should not be crossed. Even guys that are at each other's throat recognize this. But what's the lesson here? He's telling the woman, the wife in this situation, you need to have respect for the men in your life as they're sorting things out like men. There are, I mean, we've talked about this every Mother's Day and Father's Day, we do a, a, a women's message and a men's message. But men sort things out differently than women do. And it is important that that is preserved and allowed to take place. I am not a fan of the way feminism has worked over time to use, to use their term, problematize everything that men do. That the way that men talk to each other, the way that men fight with each other, the way that men compete with one another is somehow a problem. It is a similar thing, if you will pardon the illustration, to reaching out and grabbing a man in such a way. And the Lord says, these are men, let them be men. These are women, gentlemen, let them be women. Interesting little section of scripture there, but I think the lesson is important. And, you know, we've talked about this before at length, so I'm not going not to spend a lot of time on it. So... Ladies, respect the men in your life as men. That's the lesson here. Verse 13 through 16. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So not to be duplicitous in their dealings with one another, uh, they were to have, you know, not say, oh, when you're weighing my thing, we use the heavy one. When we're weighing yours, we use the light one. We have, uh, you know, the Department of Weights and Measures, which is helpful for this. But can I just say, don't be looking for loopholes and schemes in order to get you what you want in a situation. I think this would apply to where the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just speak. When you say something, you shouldn't need to be like double and triple checked. You know, you try to read a contract and it's got all this language in there to prevent people from cheating. You know, there's, there's something to be said for the handshake deal. They're like my honor meets your honor and we're going to get this done. Even if it ends up not working out for me. Be forthright, be straightforward with people. <clears throat> Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Amalek was the son of one of Esau's concubines. And Amalek becomes a symbol of the flesh throughout Scripture. In Exodus 17, when Israel was running to Mount Sinai, that's something we miss in the story sometimes, that they were rushing and hurrying and they didn't have all the supplies they needed, Amalek started to harry the back of the supply train. This is the story where Moses raised his arms. When the arms were up, they won. When the arms were down, they lost. Joshua's first military victory. 
That was against Amalek. So the Lord says, when you get in, I am pronouncing judgment on this nation. And he specifically includes this because all the other nations that were descended from Abraham were to be spared. But apparently this act was so wicked that God said, we're going to wipe out Amalek from the face of the earth. Saul would be ordered to do this by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, but he would not do it. He would keep the best of the best for himself, keep the royal family alive. And then in the book of Esther, we have a descendant of King Agag, an Amalekite named Haman, who almost destroyed the Jews in Persia. Do what God tells you to do the first time. This is a great two lessons from this chapter that maybe would be great to talk about at a men's retreat or something. But the first one is the Lord is a fan of gentlemanly warfare. It's like, don't be sitting there hitting people from behind, picking off the weak and the children and the women. You know, if you're going to fight somebody, fight somebody, right? But also, if you're going to fight a battle, win the battle, right? And I think that, well, I don't think. You look throughout history, there are plenty of examples of people that were trying to be they just wanted the war to be done. They wanted to be nice and kind of leave the enemy and, and then they move on. And then now the enemy comes back and they have to fight that again just a few years later. So not a lot of time to get into that. We're going to get into chapter 26 here. I'm going to do most of this. Verse 1 through 15. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven, and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us, as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So two ceremonies here related to tithing once they entered the land. First one is related to the first fruits. Probably related to the first harvest ever, but they would celebrate the Feast of First Fruits every year. So this is probably adding to that ceremony. 
They had ritualized language that they would speak. They would acknowledge that we have indeed come into the promised land just as God said. They would rehearse the wandering and the affliction of Israel, the exodus, and then say, but now we're here and God is providing. The other one was in the third year. We talked about this not too long ago. They would set aside tithes for the needy and the Levites, and they would swear before God every third year, yes, I've been honest, I didn't cheat, I didn't offer any of it in a pagan sacrifice, and they would ask for God's blessing. Two quick lessons from this. Number one, give to the Lord. Don't be stingy with his blessings, but be generous, for God loves a cheerful giver. And second, thank God for all that he's done. Be grateful. Never forget that it all comes from him. Don't get all hyped up and say, look what I've made for myself. Nebuchadnezzar did that, and God tricked him into thinking he was a cow for seven years. At this time, they're not even in the promised land. This is Moses' promise. You're going to make it, guys. You're going to drive out the giants, and you're going to have your land. Likewise, you and I often stand on the outside of God's promises. We can't imagine what life would be like if God had not given something to us. Don't forget the blessing that comes. When you're on the outside, you're like, how is this ever going to happen? And then you're on the inside, and you're like, oh, well, you know, these things sort of happen. Never forget the blessing when God does it for you. Pay your tribute to the Lord. And while they were supposed to remember the Exodus, we are also given a ceremony to remember what God has done. And we're going to share in it tonight, the bread and the cup that reminds us of Jesus on the cross. Let's finish the chapter now. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God, that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. So that's the conclusion of the specific instructions section which ran from chapter 12 to 26. Next chapters are the curses and the blessings for those who keep or do not keep them. Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land. He will not go in. So he adjures the people to obey the Lord. And he says, if you do, God will bless you. I would encourage you to take the time to review all these lessons on your own, uh, meditate on them and see what you can learn. But here's just our big thought for the day. If we're going to live as God's people, waiting for God's kingdom, we've got to live like it. With that everyday fairness, justice, and righteousness. President Lincoln said in his inaugural address, with malice toward none, with charity toward all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. I think that's an appropriate conclusion of what we've talked about tonight. Obviously, this is Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. We're not bound by the law. There's extra grace for you and me, even if you find that you have violated one of these things. But let's not just believe the right things. Let's do them. Truth and justice and fairness every day in your whole life.